Welcome back to the Weekly Juice. As always, Ryan and Corey here. We have an amazing episode today with, honestly, I would say a serial, serial entrepreneur, Robert Leonard. He is going to discuss stocks, real estate, personal finance, and podcasting. This guy is a jack of all trades. He wears so many different hats and manages a nine to five job. I just think anyone that is interested in becoming an entrepreneur is going to absolutely love this episode. Um, 25 years old, like absolutely crushing it was into motocross when he was younger, had to change courses, like apparently really good at motocross, right? Sponsored by huge brands. Huge companies, yeah. And then had to change courses. And now he invests in stocks, he invests in real estate. He he has his own, he's part of a major podcasting network. He's he's a hustler, so it should be a good episode. 100%. He's very professional at what he does. He's interviewed the likes of Jesse Itzler, Lewis Hose, like a lot of big A-name celebs, Robert Kiyosaki. AD, Robert Kiyosaki. Yeah. So if you're interested in entrepreneurship, this episode's for you. In addition, this episode is sponsored by Birdie Fitness. Birdie Fitness is a lifestyle apparel and fitness brand founded by personal trainer Colin Masterson. For more information, visit birdie-fitness.com. These oh, are yeah. pretty cool too. Keep these fire shirts. Yeah, you know. he sent these over to us. I love the brand. Great brand, great logo, and honestly, ran by a great guy. So, please, Colin's a great please. guy. We're repping it today. Happy to be a part of it. Check his stuff out. It's pretty cool. Ready Fitness. All right, let's jump in. Robert, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, just wanted to get a little background on you so we could share with the listeners where you're from, what you do, your professional background, and then kind of what inspires you in uh, the financial freedom and financial literacy movement here. Yeah, so I'm from the greater Boston area. I live just about an hour north of the city. I work down close to the city. So my full-time corporate job is as a corporate finance manager. I did my undergrad at in the University of Massachusetts system. I also did nice. my MBA there. And then I went on to get a CMA license, which is just an accounting license designation, kind of like the CPA for anybody that's familiar with that. Yeah. Uh, but going back to my story, it's kind of funny. I never was really into business, investing, you know, even really school or anything like that. I always did well in school, but growing up, I always raced motocross and that was going to be like my future. I started racing when I was four. I was on track to go professional and everything was lining up for me and I was doing really well. So that was kind of my goal. I never planned on going to college or anything like that. And then when I was about 14, I was about a year and a half, two years away from turning pro. Uh, my dad put the ax down and, and said we were done racing. A close family friend of ours passed away racing. So that hit him really hard and basically said that, that I was done. And if that ever happened to me, he couldn't live with himself. So for me, I stopped racing and then I didn't ride for 10 years. And I said, well, I kind of got to figure something out. Like, what am I going to do with my life now? And stumbled on to Warren Buffett, got really into value investing. And it's kind of just grown from there. Cool. That's awesome. That's a pretty, uh, pretty humbling story. I guess that if you're, if that, something like that's happened to you, it might, make you think twice or at least respect your dad's decision there on that. Cause that's, that's pretty tough. At the time I didn't respect it at all. I was, you know, I was 14, 15 years old. I was riding yeah. for some of the biggest names in the, you know, in the, the country, you know, your wow. Oakley's monster Fox, you know, all these big names, they're all sponsored me. You know, this is all I ever did. I, I lived and breathed this my whole life. And so I didn't really understand it at the time I was young. Yeah. I didn't, you know, I wasn't mature enough to realize it fast forward three, four, five years, I'm 18, 19, 20, I start to understand that idea. I look back, I say, you know, I get it. And it still sucked, but I, I get it. You know? Yeah. How old are you now? 
25. Okay, cool. We thought you were around our age. We're, we're, um, 28, 29. So, um, that's awesome. It's cool to hear about your background. I'm wondering what kind of got you, you, you mentioned you started following Warren Buffett. You started getting into investing in, so to speak, but what inspires you about personal finance or financial independence even? Because I think everyone ha- kind of has a different, different opinion of it or what it means to them. So I'm curious what, what that means to you. So once I stopped racing, I really, really dove into investing. And that was probably like around eighth grade, ninth grade. And that's pretty much all I did. And so people started to know me kind of as that kind of guy, you know, the businessy type guy. And so I became a huge nerd about it. And I just wanted to be rich. That's all I wanted. I just wanted to be absolutely filthy rich. I just wanted to be a billionaire. I wanted the private jets. And, you know, I wanted everything that people grow up dreaming they think they want, right? And so that's what I thought I wanted. And, you know, if you think back, actually, if you're familiar with superlatives, like those awards that you get at your senior year, like your senior class, I was voted most likely to be a billionaire by my class. So like that, that was just kind of like what my persona was. And so that, that was really me fast forward four years, I'm 22 and I had a son. So that really changed my life. And so that really changed my mindset. And I said, well, I don't want, to be a billionaire anymore. I want to have time freedom and I want to have financial freedom. So it's not about having as much money as you want. It's about having the time to do the things that I want. So that really changed my mind a lot. You know, that really put a big shift in me. And so that was partially, it was partially him being born, but it was also around that time, maybe a little bit later, I started to talk about, talk to some really great people. And, you know, I heard some quotes that really impacted me in terms of, you know, who actually has time freedom, who actually is, you know, quote unquote rich. And so that's really what got me interested in, in the fire movement and financial freedom. Cool. Cool. I think a lot of people can point to like a specific time where they felt like, oh, this like light bulb like went on um, for each person. And the reason why I'm asking, I'm like phrasing it this way is because I think that it's a little bit of a, a lost art with millennials in a way. Um, and not to knock millennials cause we're millennials, but I think that uh, there's an instant gratification piece that kind of comes into play with millennials. So you, you tailor what you do, what the mentoring you do, the teaching you do towards millennials. Um, what do you think it is about millennials that, or maybe I'm wrong. Like, do you not see it that way? Do, 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 like the millennials, are you seeing it that millennials have, a good grasp on financial independence or personal finance in general? No, I think you're absolutely right. I think we do live in an instant gratification world and it's not necessarily millennials fault. It's just kind of how we've grown up, you know, specifically us and, and the generation behind us, but we can have anything we want at the snap of our fingers. You know, you just open your phone and you know, today I ordered Chipotle for lunch and it was delivered to me. I didn't even need to leave my desk at work. You know, I mean, we get same day delivery from Amazon, you know, all these different things. We have trading right on our mobile apps now. Everything is just instantaneous these days. And I think that helps, but hurts millennials and, and doesn't really help our long-term investing or just long-term thinking. Yeah. Interesting. So we talk, I mean, you've talked a lot about investing and that's kind of who you were known as growing up. I mean, eighth grade, that's still pretty young, I'd say, to jump into that. So what is your specific investing strategy? Do you have you know, specific things that you invest in or you, you have a niche that you follow? So I pretty much classify myself as like a Warren Buffett style value investor. I think I've kind of tailored that to my own philosophy a bit over the years. When I first started, that was all I did. But now 
I do a little bit more on the growth side. I value companies a little bit differently than maybe a true Warren Buffett style value guy invest, but I'd say that's my base. Okay, cool. The, the uh, questions around the strategy really. And the reason why we go down that path is because um, I'm wondering if you have any personal investing goals that tie in with your strategy and like maybe even if you could dive deeper into what the, the Warren Buffett investing strategy is, cause I wouldn't be able to pull that out of like, I don't know exactly what, what, what that looks like. Yeah. So basically back in, in the day, I guess you could say back 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, Warren Buffett was really known for buying these companies that were kind of off people's radars and trading at a true discount to what they're actually worth. Back then, there wasn't as much efficiency in the market, so there was a lot of mispricing. You could find companies that had, let's say, real estate on their balance sheet, and because it's carried, you kind of have to know the technical accounting side of this to pick up on these, but these are the types of things that he could do is he'd say, okay, they bought this piece of real estate 30 years ago, and it's carried on their books, on their balance sheet at historical cost, because that's how accounting worked for the most part. And so that asset has appreciated 10x over the last 30 years, but because it's carried at historical cost, there's a hidden asset or an underlying asset on their balance sheet that makes this company worth a lot more than the public actually thinks. Now, I don't necessarily think that that happens as much these days because of how much access to information that we have. When Buffett was doing this back in the day, he was literally going to the library and reading these different reports from companies where he'd call the, the companies themselves and have their IR department mail him their 10k or you know things about the company and that's kind of how he would find it and people weren't able to do that as much as him so that's essentially what value investing is he's looking for companies that are trading at a a discount to their intrinsic value which is just their real worth and that's how he invests he looks for good management companies that are trading at a, a good value and so that's what value investing is today i think value investing I think everybody is trying to value invest these days because who wants to buy something for more than what it's worth, right? Yep. I, think, I think that's kind of what's fundamentally changed about value investing is everybody's a value investor because nobody wants to pay more for something than it's worth. Everybody's looking for that discount. And so I think you need to find the discounts in companies these days in a much different space. So for me, a lot of it comes in qualitative things that you can't quantify. And the reason for that is because you have supercomputers, you have hedge funds, you have you know, money managers that will just get rid of any type of uh, arbitrary value mispricings that there are in a snap of a finger. If there's a mispricing on a balance sheet, there's a supercomputer that can calculate that in a millisecond and trade that and, and essentially get rid of any mispricing that there is. So I don't think that necessarily exists and you need to look for the mispricings in ways that computers can't see. So I like to look at qualitative factors and, and add a value to that to really find where you might find an undervalued asset. It's cool to hear this perspective because I don't trade and I invest in a 401k and I invest in the, in, you know, large net growth stocks. I don't even know if I said that right, but like I, but I don't, I don't have that type of mindset with it the way that you do. So it's really cool to hear this. I'm wondering what money do you use to invest? Do you have a specific savings rate that allows you to bring in and save a certain amount of money to outlay towards your investments or is it commissions? I just wondering, like, how do you structure that? So for me, it's kind of changed over the years. It had been just savings. I would just put, you know, I'd put some in my 401k and that would just go into mutual funds because that's usually what companies 
force you to invest in. You usually can't invest in individual stocks in a 401k. However, as my career has grown, what I tend to do is I invest in my 401k throughout while I'm with the employer. And then when I leave that employer, I roll that 401k over into an IRA. Once it's into an IRA, then you can pick individual stocks. So basically what I do is I keep my 401k, this dollar cost averaging into mutual funds. Typically I go hundred percent into an S&P 500 fund. Cool. And then I use the money that I transferred to an IRA and I use that to pick stocks. And then anything I save outside of those accounts goes to real estate. And that's typically how I allocate my portfolio these days. Do you have a specific savings rate that you, would mind, that you wouldn't mind sharing that allows you to do this? Honestly, I don't know exactly what my savings rate is right now. I'd say maybe 20, 25%. Okay, that's cool. Cool. It's good, it's good to know good because chunk. we met with a, a, a personal finance uh, and loan planner and she said, uh, Lauren Williams, who does it for a living, and she was like, over 20% is like where you should be or a good place to be uh, in that space. It and depends what you consider in there though, too. Like, do you count 401k as savings? Some people do, some personal finance finance experts don't. So if you don't, then my number will be way lower. If you do, it might be a little bit higher. So it kind of depends how you calculate it, but I'd say I'm in that ballpark. Cool. What would, um, let's say that somebody's just beginning, because I think a lot of our listeners are probably millennials who maybe don't know a lot about investing, specific niches of investing. We have, we, we lean in towards real estate, although we do both have 401ks. What would you be, what would be your advice for somebody who's just starting out? Um, maybe either whether that's a stock to pick or, you know, that's kind of hard or just a strategy that you might give somebody. So what I recommend to new investors always for stocks is to go read two books. And there's, there, I have a couple different books that fit each of these, but I basically put people on a path and I say, go read these two books and then decide what's best for you. And so basically I give them one book that's all about individual stock picking, usually tailored more towards value investing because I think that's one of the better ways to think about it. But so I'll give them a book and say, go read this. It's about individual stock picking. And then here's another book. It's all about index fund investing. These guys will argue the complete opposite of what these guys argued. Go read both these books. Which one resonates with you more? Because you're going to you're going to like one way or the other, or maybe you want to do both. And so you need to read those two books. They're completely different. See which one resonates with you more and then go from there. So if you like the index funds, you say, you know what? I really, I like learning about this stuff, but I don't want to invest the time that I need to compete with money managers and put in the time that I need to research individual companies. Maybe I can, I'm okay with just doing average buying index funds for the next 40 years and I will get wealthy that way. Yep. That's fine. If that's the case, so be it, read that book, maybe read a couple more books about the topic maybe listen to some podcasts and, and really call it a day. It's pretty simple. Now, if you decide I'm really passionate about this, I have some time, I want to analyze companies, I want to learn how to do this, I think I can beat the market, then you need to start reading about more individual stock picking. Then I'll give them a couple more books, tell them to go read a little bit more about different strategies, things like that. And start slowly, buy you know a couple companies that small, small positions, there's no trading commissions these days, so it's not going to hurt you. Yep. Just buy a couple shares, watch those companies, see how they do. And then I also like to recommend look for trends. So for me personally, I've, for the last couple of years, I've been heavily, heavily investing in a trend away from cash. And so four of my five largest holdings are PayPal, Square, MasterCard, and Visa. Those four companies together make up about 80% of my portfolio. And 
I don't know which of those companies is going to win, you know, the cashless payment system. You don't have to know. <laughs> you don't have to know. You just buy all four and yeah. the basket. And I learned this from a guest that I had on the podcast. It's a basket approach and you're still in a uh, investing in individual companies, but now you're just kind of betting on that trend as well. And so one of those companies or a couple of those companies are going to do really well and, and drive your portfolio. That's so cool. I have a MasterCard and Visa as well. And it's cool because it's like, it's grouped together. So I think that's a really good- Fill your basket, man. Yeah, exactly. Next too. <laughs> um, yeah, Square. Could, I mean, Square has been killing it this year. I actually yeah. just signed up for Square. Uh, you signed like, up for to, to take payments. I know it's kind of weird. I had to make a payment for some of the renovations. How here. does it work? I honestly don't know. I haven't really dug into oh, all the payments way. Like from, square, like, from clients. Yeah. Oh, okay. So it's cool. It's interesting. Um, well, thank you for that as a shareholder. Thank you. There you, Absolutely. There you go. Yeah. You. See, you're coming on here. Um, would you mind sharing the, the titles of those two books for our listeners? Yeah. So I don't have like, I say two books, but I kind of give a, so there's two categories I should say. And then I recommend on one category, I'll give a recommendation of two or three books and I'll say, just pick one of these. They're all, about individual stock picking, just pick whichever one you have access to, whichever is the cheapest, you know, whatever fits your boat, but they're all going to give you the same idea. And the same thing on the index side, I say here, here's two or three books about this topic. Just pick one. You don't have to read them all. Just pick one okay. and go and read it. But uh, so uh, for some examples on the individual stock picking side, I would say uh, the Dondo Investor, which is by Monish Pabrai, uh, the Education of a Value Investor by Guy Spear. And there's a couple other Joel Greenblatt books that you could read uh, that are really good, but those are usually the two that I recommend on the individual stock picking side. Again, remember, these aren't going to get you to where you need to be in terms of all of the education you need to pick individual stocks. It's just going to help you decide, do I want to go index or individual stock picking? So that's that. And then on the index side, I recommend, I always butcher the name, but I think it's the common sense guide to mutual fund investing or, or something along those lines. It's a John Bogle book. Uh, just look up Rick Ferry or the Bogleheads and read a book like that. There, there's a lot of great information out there. Awesome. So I'd love to turn gears here a little bit and dive into podcasting. You seem like you wear many hats on a day-to-day -day basis. One includes podcasting. Um, and it, based on what I'm, I'm researching and, and I've listened to a couple episodes, but you have a few different podcasts and there was something that I read and I was wondering if you could explain it. What, what is the Investors Podcast Network? And then do you have podcasts that flow underneath of those? I want to go from there. Yeah, absolutely. So in 2014, late 2014, early 2015, Preston and Stig founded the Investors Podcast and they started with their flagship show called We Study Billionaires. They were able to grow that show. It's today the number one stock investing podcast in the world. They've done somewhere around 32 million downloads, uh, do a couple over a couple million a month. Uh, so it grew really big. And so in late or early 2019, they decided we should do something with our brand equity. You know, you see this a lot in TV networks. They leverage their brand. You see ABC has a bunch of shows or you were seeing NPR do this in the podcast space. You're seeing Wandry do this in the podcast space. They're leveraging that brand name that they have to launch additional shows about different topics. And so that's what we did. And so it just so happened that my show, Millennial Investing, was the first one that we launched as part of this network. So we leveraged the brand, tailored it to a little bit different audience, a different topic, and went that way. And since then we've launched four more shows and we're just continuing to build out the network. So did they seek you out or did you reach out to them to be part of it? I reached out to them. So I was driving to work one day and it just so happened that their podcast was the first podcast I had ever listened to. It's kind of how I got into podcasting, like actually listening as a consumer. 
Mm-hmm. And because they're all about Warren Buffett, that's what they originally started. And so that's kind of how I got involved with them. I was studying it at the time. And it was my favorite podcast. And I remember driving to, I go to the gym before work and it was like 5 a.m. I'm driving to the gym before work and I was listening to it on one of their podcasts. They had an ad and they said they were looking for a host for a new show. Uh, but they were looking for someone who was an expert in tech and lived in Silicon Valley. And I said, well, man, I would love to do this with them, but I don't know anything about tech and I don't live in the Valley, so I can't do this. And so I just kind of put it to the side. I didn't really think much of it. Fast forward a year or two, uh, they had a similar ad and they said that they were looking to do a real estate show. My ears perked up. I was like, well, I'm a real estate investor. You know, maybe I could do this. And so I reached out to them and I actually got denied for the real estate show originally. And so he said, well, why don't we do a millennial investing show? And so we did that. We started that. It's done really, really well. We started working on some other projects together. Those all went really well. And he's like, you know, hey, why don't you do the real estate show? And so that kind of is where it's gone now. Uh, so I do the real estate show, do the millennial investing show, and also VP of growth. So I'm helping the company with any growth initiatives, any new ideas that we could think of to help the organization grow. That's awesome. So what are the two official names of the podcast in case our listeners want to jump in and take a listen? Yeah, so we keep it very simple. One is just called millennial investing. And then the other one is just called real estate investing. Cool. Super easy. Um, so I was curious of how you actually got into podcasting in general. Was this the first project you jumped in on or did you have something beforehand? So technically no. So back when I was in college, a friend of mine and I had an idea for a podcast. I think this was maybe 2015. So this is still very, very early days of, of podcasting. You know, very, very few people are doing it. And we, we started and embarrassingly, we recorded two episodes. They were completely awful. Knowing what I know now, they were horrible. Uh, we published them. No one listened. We gave up and that was that. You know, nothing really went of it. We maybe spent a week on it. And that kind of goes back to the point of instant gratification that millennials have was I was bouncing around from idea to idea to idea to idea. And so basically put that to the side, four or five, six years went by. And then I got this opportunity to work with the guys at TIP, the Investors Podcast. And that's when I really got into podcasting. I don't even really consider the, the other adventure really podcasting per se. Yeah, but it's cool because you like you have a, formed a partnership on doing something that you like to do. Like, it seems like you're natural at this, at least from what we can tell. And like, it's for us doing the podcast is like, we didn't think that we had the voices or we didn't think that we had the, the, you know, all the accolades or whatever you need. We just like talking about real estate, personal finance and, and, and these types of things. And we vibe well together and we thought, ah, maybe other people will like, like to listen to this stuff. So, or, or just hear what other people around their age are doing. So I think it's, I think it's cool that you just, even though you hadn't been like an expert on it, right. You kind of, Someone asks you if you know how to do something, you say yes, and then you figure it out. Yeah, yeah, it's <laughs> yeah, like uh, absolutely. It's like jump out of the plane and then let your build par- a parachute on the, the way down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I was horrible at first. I've definitely, I, I still have a long way to come, but I think my my presence and my talking and things like that have come a long way. But I still definitely have a long way to go. But yeah, when I first started, yeah, it just it was rough. Improving because we we always think about oh, how can we improve probably get a mic that's more than $50, but (laughs) (laughs) so I listened to a bunch of your episodes and I just can appreciate the way you ask certain questions and your tone. And obviously that doesn't come overnight. So what do you do to continually better yourself and better the content in your podcast? So I think it's a few things. 
one is just repetition. Just do it over and over and over and over again. You know, I've recorded probably 125 episodes roughly uh, in the last year and a half. So that alone, you know, you just talk to, you start talking to some bigger name people. Like I've I've talked to owners of NBA teams. I've talked to sharks on shark tank. I've talked to Lewis Howes, Robert Kiyosaki, who wrote rich dad, poor dad, you know, I've talked to some really big names. So that really just kind of, not only does it teach you, you learn like how they're speaking to you. So that helps, but also by talking to those big names, it kind of forces you to just be comfortable. You know, you gotta, it's like, putting yourself in an, in an opportunity that you just need to level up for, you know, it's when you, when you, there's some saying or, or some philosophy that when you play in sports against a team, that's about the same as you, you play at that level. But when you play a team that's better than you, you come up to their level. Yeah. It's kind of the same thing with podcasting. You kind of just get the hang of it. And, and as with anything, practice, practice, practice makes perfect. In terms of, of the show itself, there's a lot, a lot of preparation that goes into it, both on the front end and the back end that I don't think a lot of people do. And a lot of people will argue it's not worth it. Uh, we disagree at TIP. We think, we think that time is worth it. Uh, we think, you know, it's an audio podcast. So we think the quality of the audio needs to be, you know, first and foremost. So we send all of our guests questions, you know, a list of 10 to 15 questions, at least 48 hours before the interview. Now, some people say, well, isn't that going to sound scripted? And at first, yes. If you listen to my first couple episodes, it does sound scripted because I was new. Now that I've got the hang of it, that's our base. And we generally cover most of those questions, but we also let the conversation flow and go where it goes. So it's not a script. We'll ask a couple questions. They'll say something and I'll say, oh, I, you know, I have another question. We'll go that way for a little. And then we come back to the list of questions I have. And that makes a huge difference, mostly because it allows the guest to be prepared. When you're you know, I've had many people reach out to me and say, your guys' guests are incredible. They're so prepared. They have great responses. And that's partially because they are great guests, but that's also because we help them get prepared ahead of time. And we also give them, you know, some in the guide that we send them, we have pointers of say, you know, try and be in a quiet room. This is what we're focusing on. You know, just a bunch of different things that you want to do to have the best audio quality that you can. And then on the back end, we invest a lot of time in editing. We take out every single um. We do some processing on the sound in uh, software. We take out, we make it all sound really good. So we just, we spend a lot of time on editing and we also, we're not afraid to take out content. So there, I can't even tell you number of times we, we've recorded for over an hour, say 75 minutes. And we cut that to a 45 minute episode. So we cut out 30 minutes of content because we didn't think it was valuable. Uh, you know, whatever the case may be, there was reasons why we cut that out. The audio quality wasn't good. There's so many different reasons, but we, we cut it out. We only provide the best content that we can and we make sure the quality is really now that takes a lot of time, but that's how you get to kind of where we're at. Keep going. Our producer's listening very intently. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> happy, guys happy to help. Happy well, to no, help. I, mean, I no, think no, no, part I'm of sorry. it starts out with your budget too. Like you have to bootstrap, you have to get off the ground. You have to, you know, you kind of got into a situation where it sounded like they were had some success already too. So that's good. We, we love how like we were like, we're going to do this. And then we did it. And now we're, we're building the wall as we go, right? Like, we're, you know, we're building the pyramid or whatever you want to say, like to get better. So that's cool. I'm sure that Sharpen the X. I think that advice is awesome. It's amazing. Thank yeah. you. Um, You're absolutely right. But don't, don't let the money stop you because a lot of what I just said is free. We use a word doc for the guide. There's no reason you can't create a word doc or a Google doc and send it to your, your guests beforehand with questions. You have to invest some time, but it's free. And then the editing, we pay 29 bucks a month 
for the entire Adobe suite. We use Adobe Audition to edit. I mean, yeah. it's 30 bucks a month. That's not too bad. Uh, and other, I mean, yeah, we have a nice mic. We have, an, you know, a bunch sure. of equipment over here that you can't see that that definitely does help. But all of this other stuff, the editing, it's going to take time, but it's, it's 30 bucks a month. You know, you can get four episodes for 30 bucks. That's not bad. Seven bucks an episode. It's, it's pretty affordable. Yeah. It's not bad at all. It's cool. You mentioned a few big names and I, I may have cut you off because I got excited. So I apologize on that. And I apologize to the listeners. Um, I believe you mentioned Robert Kiyosaki, Jesse Itzler, um, Scott Lewis Trench, House. potentially Scott Loose Trench. House. If you could just, how, how did you land those big names to come onto your podcast? So what, not only what gave you the confidence to go and make the ask, but you know, how did you sync them? I'll be honest. It was mostly the brand, our, our brand. And it's also kind of one of those by association, they say yes. So the guys on We Study Billionaires, they had Tony Robbins on the show. So you kind of name drop that. You say, hey, we had Tony Robbins on the show. We'd love to have you. And then they come on. So I wrote some creative copy. You know, I'll give myself a little bit of credit that I did write some good copy in the emails to, to catch their attention because these guys get so many emails. But it just kind of, you just got to ask. You kind of show how you're going to provide value to them and, and just go for it. And so just kind of funny story is we had Jesse Itzler on my show and he was in Poland with Lewis Howes. And they were in a hot tub together when Lewis Howes got my email asking for him to come on the show. And he was like, oh, Jesse Itzler was just telling me how he was on your show. And it just kind of worked. So he responded on a Saturday night. He's in the hotel, uh, hotel jacuzzi, you know, in Poland. And he, he told me that he'd come on the show. And I was like, that's amazing. So I didn't necessarily have to drop Jesse's name, but you can just name drop these guys. And, and it's kind of a snowball from there. Once you get these people on the show, it just kind of grows. So you really just got to land your first one and then that's go fun. from there. Absolutely. I want to add, add one more thing too. Yeah, and right. I think you guys will, will get this valuable. And it's kind of counterintuitive and, and I almost hate giving this advice, but I have found that the big names aren't as important as a lot of people think. And it's kind of interesting because it helps a ton. It, hel it helps a ton for the brand. So I can come to you guys and say, hey, we had Tony Robbins. We had a shark from Shark Tank, Matt Higgins. We had, I was just talking to Kevin O'Leary today. He's probably going to be coming on the show from Shark Tank. Yeah, Lewis, you know, all these guys, Robert Kiyosaki, all these guys, it helps a lot for the brand. It helps for the show. But in terms of actually growing the show, it really doesn't help. A lot of those people have actually been our lowest downloaded episodes. And the reason for that is because of they're not sharing it. So these guys have millions and millions of followers on all their social platforms, but they're not really sharing it. They're just, we're thankful to get their time and have them come on the show, which is great. But if they're not sharing it with their network, it's not really reaching a broad audience. So it's not really helping us. I've had guys come on the show that have 10 to 20,000 followers. They're super engaged. It's a small community, but they're engaged and they share the episode. Those are our most downloaded episodes by far. That's so funny that you say that because we, we look at like who our target audience is and I find the engagement oftentimes with 10 to 20,000 on Instagram, at least those followers, their engagement's really, really good. You don't have as many bots and stuff, but I also think that like you're saying, they're a little bit more willing to share how they got to a certain point. They don't feel like they're giving up free game that, that people might end up paying for. So I like, we just ask people to come on. Like, I think that's cool. You're putting it into the universe and like, we're, we just ask people and we think that we provide a good product similar to you. We think they're going to come on and we've, you know, had success so far. Hopefully to have more like, so I think that's really cool and good advice because 
you would think that your most downloaded episodes would be like with somebody who has 5 million Instagram followers or, yeah, or you would it, think you would yeah. think. And I, I put a lot of time and effort and honestly stress and just trying to get these guys on the show. And I would, I work a full-time corporate job. You're nine to five. These guys are super busy. So unless they're on the West coast and they could record at four o'clock, which would be seven our time. Yeah. I, I was taking days off work so that I could record with them because they were such a big name. Hmm. I'm not doing that anymore. I'm not even, I honestly don't even reach out to big guests anymore because they don't provide the value for us that the smaller or medium sized guests do. And so just as an example, one of our episodes this week, the guy has about a hundred thousand followers, but he was willing to share. He put a post out on his Instagram. It's their most downloaded episode by far, you know, and, and I also was on real vision this week. So that helped probably, but it's just those posts help. And when you're getting, you're not going to see Robert Kiyosaki put this out on his Instagram. And so if he's not putting it out on his Instagram, his community is not seeing it, which means that we're not getting that engagement from his community. So they're not helping us in that way. And so it's really, you need to get people that are willing to share the show. That is the big thing. Yeah, that's cool. We had um, Chris from the Stealthy Rich on in terms of, I don't know how familiar you are, but we, the reason that we love talking to him is, and the reason that we love his page is because he shares all these details about each one of his properties and it provides real value. Like I look at this and I'm like, wow, he's, his loan pay down has been this this month. You know, he's made this much cash flow. He used this strategy to get into it. He's using this strategy to potentially exit. And like, it blows my mind how much value that I get and how much value he gets to his, listen, to his subscribers and listeners. And he gets people to pay on his website. And he has, I don't know, 20,000 followers. But like, those guys are... Uh, it, those guys are good. So yeah, it's cool. It's invaluable advice. Yeah. So I appreciate that. I'd be much. willing to bet if you get him to share the post on like an Instagram, even on a story with a link or something, that'll be a better downloaded episode than if you got somebody with a million followers, but they don't share it. I'd be willing to bet. <laughs> he would, that was a very popular episode that he had. Um, but we haven't had anyone with a million yet. So I'll let you know. <laughs> <laughs> Climb our way up. So just to wrap up the podcasting segment here, what's your end goal with podcasting? Honestly, I don't know. Honestly, I don't. I, I don't really have one. I'm just kind of just trying to help as many people. I mean, I guess the end goal is just I'm trying to help as many people as I can. You know, I don't think that's necessarily an end goal per se, because an end goal, I think you need to be achieved to be able to achieve. But yeah, I just want to help as many people as I can and, and get to talk with all the awesome people that I get to talk to. And, you know, I get to meet with you guys and all kinds of different people that I get to connect with and network. I think it's, that's awesome. I don't, I don't know necessarily what I'm going to, you know, I don't know what, I'll, what point I'll hit and say this was the end goal. So we'll see. You don't have to know. And by the way, that's like the coolest part that we've thought out about it is like just the organic networking. We're meeting with so many cool people. And you're honestly having fun, <laughs> gaining knowledge and then sharing the wealth. Yeah. I love that you do that. So we, um, I want to shift it a little bit. We kind of like, we'll circle back to a little bit of your, of the real estate part of, of your investing. So if I were to paint the picture for people, it sounds like you have a nine to five job you are saving 20 to 25% of your income. You're investing a portion of it with stocks and mutual funds and 401k. And then the other portion of it, you're investing in real estate. And I'm wondering what is your strategy there with real estate and you know, like why real estate to add on to that? So the reason for real estate is because of that shift that I went through of from wanting to be a billionaire to wanting time freedom. I don't think there's any better way to get control of your time or generate passive income than with real estate. I think hands down it's the best way. And so that's really why I got into real estate. I did it by accident. I didn't 
set out to be a real estate investor just kind of happened by accident. Uh, in terms of my strategy, I don't do anything fancy. I, I haven't done any flips or anything like that. I, I plan to do some flips actually here in the near future. I haven't yet. I keep it really simple, uh, really honestly kind of boring, just do traditional rentals. Uh, the one thing I guess I'd say that is kind of exciting, if anything, is that I do long distance investing mainly. But yeah, traditional rentals is typically my focus. I've done house hacks too, but that's on my personal side. Cool. Uh, where do you where do you invest? Uh, mainly in Texas right now. Okay. Cool. Just like Rio. Yeah, and and the stealthy rich they they're in oh, Houston true. too. So, um, cool. We what t- what type of properties do you invest in, and what is your you said single or you said you have a couple rentals, but what's your strategy there? Like what what do you find that works well for you, and like why Texas? So I invest in my personal residences through house hacks. So I buy properties, rent them out and try to live for cheaper. That was the first property I ever did by accident. And then my second property, which is what I'm in today is what you call a quote unquote live and flip. So you buy a property that's typically livable. Uh, You can move in and then you do some minor renovations while you live there. And then you sell it when you want to move or, or you could even rent it out if you want. And so that's what I'm doing right now. I'm actually planning to sell this property and buy a three or four unit and house hack, or I might even buy a large single family and do a rent by the room situation. But regardless, I'm going to sell this property soon and, and do another house hack. In terms of the other properties, it's a, just traditional rentals. We're doing single family right now. Uh, I always said I'd never do a single family. I always said I'd only do multifamily. And then I actually, my first rental was a long distance single family property. So basically the plan is to build that portfolio up to maybe seven or eight of those, maybe seven to 10 of those, sell them and then 1031 exchange them or just put that into uh, maybe a 25 unit, 30 unit. So essentially turn seven to 10 units into 30 or 40 and then probably do it again or something like that. Cool. What do the numbers look like on these deals? And like, why do you find them intriguing if you're willing to share? Yeah, happy to share. So I, I post all of this. It's very, very public. I talk yeah. about it on, on podcasts. I'm not, not uh, too worried about sharing it. Yeah. Uh, so the property, you guys are, I think, in Philly, right? And uh, one is from the Cape. So you're familiar with these, these prices that we have up here. It's, oh, yeah. it's kind of crazy. So we bought a three-bed, two-bath, beautiful house with a garage, great, great school district, great location, good area, good neighborhood, all, all fenced in yard for 65000 down in Texas. And, uh, we rent it for, we rented it for the first year for 900. We just re-rented it for 950 during a global pandemic. We raised rents 50 bucks a month. And I think we probably could have done probably a thousand. Uh, so that's what our gross rents are. We cash flow roughly 350, maybe 400 a month, uh, take out vacancy, CapEx, things like that. Some of the reserves we're setting aside, we take home about 300 a month from that. So and that was straight off the MLS. You know, people will say, you know, it can't be done. You got you to gotta invest. You got to find all these off-market deals. You have to have relationships with brokers, things like that, which are helpful. I'm not saying that they're not because they are, but this can be done right off the MLS. So that's those kind of the numbers on, on that deal. We only had to put in about 14 or 15,000 bucks. So not, not a ton of money. Um, the whole, you know, rent ratio that we talk about, right? Like, they're getting a one and a half percent, right? On a 950 or a thousand, even a little bit higher on a 950 or a $1,000 of rent on a $60,000 purchase. To me, that's a great deal, like to be buying those all day long. And to buy them off the MLS is, a lot of people think that you need, like you said, need to have these, not secret, but secretive relationships, or you need to know everybody. Your network needs to be huge. They're right there in front of your face. So 
it's cool. I think that's. I heard you say important. we a lot. Do you go in with a partner on each deal? Yeah, I have a business partner that I invest with. Excellent. Cool. That's uh, that's us. Yeah. Business partners. So we we uh, we love partnering. I think it mitigates risk a little bit, and also we talked about this in the previous episode, just bouncing ideas off off of each other and. And I think it gives you the ability to scale, which, which scale and it allows you, if you have different strengths, it helps a lot that way too. Yeah, absolutely. What are, that's cool that you, if you're willing to share, what are the strengths that help you guys balance off each other and maybe get to that seven to 10 range? Because I think it's important for some of our audience members to say, well, I want to partner with somebody, but if you both have the same goals, it's good to have the same goals, but if you both have different strengths, like you said, it can also help you scale faster. So I'm wondering what you think you're good at versus your partner. You want to have the same goals, but you want to have different skill sets or strengths. Yeah. So for me, I'm the numbers, analytical deal finder type of guy. Like I'll find the deal, I'll analyze it, I'll run the numbers, I'll tell him or any other investors that we have whether it's a good deal or not. And you know, I know the nitty gritty on all of that. I know I do a little bit more of the, the property management, dealing with tenants, that kind of stuff. The, the more like type A or OCD type stuff is, is kind of on my, my side. Like that in a way. Now for him, he's a salesman by trade. So he's super outgoing. I'm an accountant by trade. So I'm a little bit more introverted. He's a salesman by trade. He sells, talks to people all day. So that's kind of what his expertise is. He, we haven't done a ton of it yet, but he's going to be our capital raiser. He's going to be the one that talks to investors. He does all of the, he does a lot of our calling just kind of relationship building that type of stuff is is what falls into him now i've done the podcast and i'm getting to be more outgoing so i'm kind of going that route too but yeah, that's typically how we split things it's cool we had a and i wasn't sure if i was going to bring this up but we had somebody reach out to us and say on instagram and say that they were going through some tough times and they want to get into real estate investing um but they thought that maybe they'd they lost their job. They didn't think they were very bankable at the moment. Uh, I don't know if they lost their job, but something happened. Where so basically, the story is he he's a hustler by trade, right? He would go into basically companies would hire him to do trainings, and no one's in their office right now, so they're not hiring anybody to do training. So he actually has no income as of right now, aside from what he saved because he was an entrepreneur, and he's now like, guys, can you? Can you, he's like, well, can you, can you create a, have a podcast, have somebody come on to talk about this specifics? I have my own opinions about it. I think that he should, he should do what you're saying. Use leverage his skill set to find somebody else. Maybe he's the person who finds the deal, right? Or he brings the deal to the table and then find somebody else. What I'm curious, I know we're putting you on the spot a little bit, but you mentioned different skill sets. What would your advice be for somebody who's like, I don't have the money, but I have X. What would you think? Um, well, what do you think that he should do in that scenario? I should say what he should do and what I would probably do if I was in his situation is you find a credit partner. So you find somebody that has a good solid W2 job and they be the one that qualifies for the loan. You do it together, but you find somebody that has a solid quality W2 job that can get the loan and you do everything else. And that's kind of how you split that. And a lot of people will do that, especially people that go full-time in real estate it's, it's super easy to get a job when you're a solid W2 employee. I mean, it's, it's just truly not that difficult if you know what you're doing and, and you keep your personal finances is it in order. Yeah. But if you're self-employed, like it sounds like this guy is, it could be very difficult. You know, there's a lot of hoops to jump through. You don't fit, you know, lenders, you know, boxes. So it could be hard. 
So that's why you can partner with someone who has a W2 job, may not have the time to invest in all these deals or find the deals or things like that. So you do all that work. They come in as the credit partner and that's how you, you kind of work that partnership. In that case, you don't necessarily have to have different skills. You just both bring different aspects to the table that you need for the deal. Cool, Robert. I think the, what's the all encompassing, we talked about your goals a little bit, but from a personal finance perspective, and we'll tie it all together here, stock investing, 401k, real estate, you said a couple, you know, seven to 10 properties. What is your, what does 10 to 12 years in the future look like for, for you, Robert? 10 to 12 years in the future, I definitely have a much bigger real estate portfolio. Essentially where I'll be is I'll have a, a real estate portfolio that can sustain my lifestyle. Will I be working a corporate job? Maybe, maybe not. I truly love what I do for my corporate job. I don't plan on leaving my corporate job anytime soon. I like what I do, but I want to be able to have that flexibility and safety so that if anything were to ever happen, whether I voluntarily leave or, or if I get involuntarily fired, I want to be able to have that safety net where, where real estate is my cash flow and really what I'm living off of. Ideally, I'd like to live off the cash flow and completely bank my salary or vice versa, you know, live off my salary, completely bank the real estate, you know, essentially be the same thing. But that's kind of where I see 10 to 12 years from now. It's amazing how many people we talk to that they lost the luster for trying to be a billionaire. And if that happens, like that's great. Right. But the, so many people in the personal finance community have said, Oh, I just want to be able to understand how much I spend a year, make that in passive income and then live my life the way that I want to live it. It sounds like that's similar to what, you want to do, right? That's exactly what I want to do. And the, the reason for that, I mentioned one was my son being born, but two, I sat down and I talked with someone and I had this, this meeting, if you will. And, and he put me through this exercise that was, it's a, it's a bit bold to say this, but it was life-changing for me, honestly. And it was pretty simple, but basically two things. One, he said, the people that are billionaires, they often don't have as much time as people who are, you know, multimillionaires or just have financial freedom, if you will, through real estate. Yep. So if that's what you want, fine. But if you, you know, you look at the guys that are really, really wealthy, they have a lot of money, but they don't have a lot of time because they're in order to make that money, they're just so, so busy. So you can go that route, but just keep that in mind. And the second thing you did, and this is what really, really kind of put things in perspective for me was I thought I had to be a billionaire because of the things that I thought I wanted in life. I've, I'm a, I'm a motocross guy by trade. You know, I like, cars. I like motors. I like things of, of that nature. I'm not huge into material things. I don't really care about having like a mansion or anything like that. Just want a small, nice house with some land so I can have a motocross track and things <laughs> like that. But I want a supercar. That's something I've always dreamed of. I've always wanted to own a supercar. And yeah. yeah and so I'm going to. And so I thought I had to be you a billionaire. Right. I promise you. I will. I will. I, so I thought I had to be a billionaire for that. And so basically the exercise that this guy put me through was he said, take a notebook write down the craziest things that you could ever imagine you want. Everything, no matter how crazy it is. If you want a plane, put the plane on there. I don't really care about having a plane, but as an example, put, put everything you want on there, a lake house, a regular house, you know, all this different stuff. And so I did that. I put down everything I wanted, Lamborghini, you know, lake house, you know, whatever it was. I calculated how much money you need to afford that. And it wasn't that much. It was a big number. And yes. it's, it's, it would be a lot to 99% of people, but it's not a billion dollars. It's not even close. It, you know, it, it's a lot, 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 lot less than that. Yeah. So that really, to me, I was like, I can have my wildest dreams. I got everything I ever wanted. And I don't need that much money. Was well, there a certain point that it's like, 
more is not even better, right? More oh. doesn't affect your happiness in any way. And that, like, we love that stuff. And like, Rai always talks about how he wants a supercar too. And like, th- by the way, that's great. Like, if that's what you want, write that down, go get it. He's going to have it because he's just that type of guy, similar to you. But it's at the end of the day, you look at it and you're like, well, if I made a million dollars a year versus $2 million a year, or I made $5 million a year versus $10 million a year. Like where does the happiness line get drawn? Like, does it matter that much more? Like I, I tend to think that I don't know what the number is for me personally. I'm curious if you feel like that, if you made, I don't know, hundred thousand dollars a year in passive income, $200,000 a year in passive income, where do you think that you'd feel like you accomplished what you wanted maybe you don't even know the answer but it's just i don't know the answer to that yeah because i think that it is a, it is a scale like you'll a hundred thousand might not be enough two hundred thousand might not be enough but three hundred thousand might be enough or you know a million's enough but two million really wouldn't make a difference so it, yeah. it's kind of like who knows really but when you think about we'll just ryan and I talk about the, the supercar example it's a lot of money in the grand scheme of things, you can own a supercar or lease a supercar for roughly $3,000 a month. Not, you don't need a billion dollars for that. You know, yeah. that's doable. And then that's a lot of money. That's a mortgage for many people. So I'm not, I'm not minimizing that. It's a lot of money, but you don't need to make a billion dollars a year. You don't need to be worth a billion dollars to afford that. You know, that's 10 rental properties, 12 rental properties that you can have your supercar right there. Checking so, that what, out. Saying, <laughs> what you're saying the best way that the, the, the thing that i think resonates the most with me and maybe ride too is that you're talking about having an asset pay for that it's not where we're talking about millennials here and we think that millennials are like this isn't a knock on them again i'll say it but i want this now i want the nicest house now i want the nicest jewelry now if you can put those things on hold for I don't know, five to eight years with intention in how you spend your money and intention in how you invest, intention in how you invest potentially in real estate. I think you can have all those things that you want. I don't know how you feel about that, but that's like, it's just- yeah, I feel the same way. That's the Robert the Kiyosaki way. Yeah. Yeah, that's the Robert Kiyosaki way. You know, buy assets that pay for your liabilities. You know, you can't buy the liabilities because you won't have any money left over for the assets. Good stuff. Good stuff. Did Good. you have something else? Last drop. Okay. The last drop. Yeah. So go ahead. So yeah, uh, we typically end our show with a segment called the last drop. And essentially what we're looking for here is if you could provide tangible resources that you'd recommend, I'd say for a millennial investor or a beginning investor that they can add to their arsenal, whether it be a book, program, app, et cetera. I know you mentioned two books or two or three books before. So just something that you might use on a daily basis that helps you optimize your personal finance, et cetera. I use, so for, for personal finance stuff or just day-to-day life or, you know, what kind of resource are we looking this for? Is anything that pops in your head, honestly. Yeah, I think. We'll so like- the first thing, first thing that popped in my head was this thing I call the daily time log. And I use it every single day. And I make a list of everything I need to get done that day. And I keep my goals in there. So at the top, I put the date. I have the time I woke up, how many hours I got to sleep because I like to know how that impacts my day. And then I write one thing I'm thankful for, or, you know, just, uh, yeah, basically something I'm thankful for is the first thing on the paper. Then I write down five to six big tasks that I have to get done for the week. Those stay on the daily time log for the whole week. And then I have three categories of tasks. I have stuff I have to get done at work. I have stuff I need to get done for my side hustle. And then I have things I need to just get done for my daily life, clean the house, take out the trash, things like that. And then at the bottom, 
I have a section for reflection. So I'll, I require myself to learn at least 30 to 60 minutes a day. So I, I have a section that says, what did you, you know, what did you study today? What, what did you spend your 30 to 60 minutes on? Uh, what was your physical activity for the day? I need to work out every single day. So what did I do for my physical activity? And last, what did I struggle with for that day? And I fill that sheet out every single day. It takes maybe 10 to 15 minutes. And honestly, it's made a huge impact on my life. It's something that I've kind of just developed over the years. And that's probably the biggest thing. You know, I can name books and resources, things like that. But I think that's I the biggest thing. Dude, right that's there. major intentionality. I don't know if I could even get to that level of like. You're about to because we're going to have Robert DM <laughs> us that. Exactly. And we're going to make a post about it. Yeah. If you don't mind. I don't mind. You, you have to, you know, and it, it's being intentional. It's being organized. That's how I'm able to do as much stuff as I have. You know, I have a lot of stuff on my plate and that's how you get to stay organized. And, and it's worked a lot for me. Cool. Wherever you want to end up going, once you figure that out, I have no doubt that you'll end up getting there. So. And you'll be driving you. there in your supercar. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Guaranteed. Yep. Guaranteed. We really do appreciate your time. Hopefully we're able to stay in touch. I think, um, I think I'd be interested to see what you're, you know, you're 25, what happens in 27 for Robert 30. You know, I think, uh, good things. Financially are coming, free by 30. What's that? Financially free by 30. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Awesome. We appreciate it. Um, yeah. So Robert, if you could share where people can find you, if they'd like to network, I'm not sure how, you know, how much you communicate on social media, but wherever someone can find you, if they love the episode and just want to connect, maybe listen to your podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Best place to find me and connect with me directly is on Instagram. That's just my username, the Robert Leonard. Uh, you guys probably put that in the show notes. Uh, so that's the best place to connect with me directly. I post there every single day. One of my, one of my passions is turning social media into an educational resource and making it not a time suck. Uh, before I started the podcast, I refused to have any social media because it wasted my time and I had big goals and I didn't want to want to do that. So when I joined uh, social media, I decided that I needed it to be educational. I needed to add value to people's lives and not waste their time. And so that's what I do every single day. I have a post that adds some sort of value to people's lives. And so you can do that. Follow me on Instagram at the Robert Leonard. Uh, if you want to follow the podcast, uh, the, the one about personal finance and stock investing is just called Millennial Investing. And the real estate show is just called Real Estate Investing. You can find both of those at theinvestorspodcast.com. You'll see my face and the shows there, all kinds of resources. And uh, if you guys like the episode, you want to have any questions, feel free to send me a DM. I always like connecting with you guys. Awesome. Thank you very much. Yeah, man. Appreciate your time. Hopefully we can yeah. stay in touch. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys.